0: Well, good evening. My name is Ben Milner. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are looking at the prophecy of Isaiah this summer. We're coming to the end of the first half of the book. Uh, The book of Isaiah is split into two parts, and we're going to be covering the second part in the fall. And so um, the whole book is written and kind of straddles the exile, this singular event in the history of the Jewish people that happened around 600 B.C. If you know much about the Old Testament history, you know that... Um, This is kind of the lowest point in the history of Israel, that in uh, right around 600 B.C., they were taken into captivity. Uh, Jerusalem was completely destroyed, and all the the people were taken away, um, and they were led into Babylon, where they were basically slaves in Babylon. And so chapters 1 through 39 of Isaiah are all written in the context of before that event of the exile. And uh, so it's a vision of the devastation that's going to come in the exile. Because Isaiah keeps telling his people, uh, this is how bad things are in in this nation. It's going to lead to this exile. God is going to come and he's going to judge his people. And so the first half, 1 through 39, is a vision before the exile of what's going to happen then. It's mostly a vision of devastation for the most part. 40 through 66... Also written before the exile, but is a vision of what will happen after the exile. And so it's a vision of mostly hope and encouragement. He's telling his people, although the exile is coming, there will be this greater, much greater hope. So that's the basic structure of the book. And this evening, we're standing at the end of the first vision. Now, there are a few more chapters, uh, 36 through 39. We're going to be looking at that next week and the following. But those are kind of a historical interlude. We'll talk about that next time. But essentially, the prophecy, the vision ends right here with chapter 35. And so, what Isaiah does at the very end of the first half um, is to say in Isaiah 34, here's a summary of the devastation. We didn't read that tonight, but you can go back and look at that. Isaiah 34 is kind of a summary of the first half, the devastation that is coming in the exile. And so, Isaiah 35 is a preview of the hope that is coming after the exile. So in a a way, 34 and 35 are kind of a a microcosm of of the entire prophecy, the massive prophecy. And our culture tells us that the goal in life is really about finding the maximum amount of happiness here and now, that it's a simple version of it, but that's basically true. And if that's true, then Isaiah 35, and really the whole prophecy of Isaiah, and really the whole Bible, it doesn't make any sense at all that if maximizing happiness is is the case that that is what life is about then then really Isaiah 35 and these visions of hope are maybe even dangerous you know Karl Marx called it uh, the opiate of the masses that keeps people in subjection to the status quo and uh, Freud called it an infantile wish fulfillment these prophecies of hope because if that's what life's about—is the here and now and getting happiness here and now—it's true that these things are delusional and they are used by the powerful to oppress the weak. But, uh, but if Isaiah's right and if the Bible's right and if our secular culture is wrong and if maximizing happiness is not what life's about and if there's something greater to come, then Isaiah 35 is telling us uh, the only place that we can have our hope. Uh, is in verse 10, essentially. That uh, much of our ability to find happiness in this life will depend on how much we believe in verse 10, which is kind of the, the, the high point of this prophecy, chapter 35. The ransomed of the Lord. That means a group of people that are paid for by God and God's own suffering, which we're going to get to later in this meal. But that's what the ransomed are. The ransomed of the Lord, those paid for who were in slavery uh, paid for by God and his suffering, they will return to a glorious celestial city. That's what Zion is. A much, a much greater celestial city, the new Jerusalem. Uh, the very end of Revelation describes that city. The ransom of the Lord returning to a glorious celestial city, and there's singing, and there's everlasting joy on their heads. Uh, that's, that's the hope that Isaiah is painting. That goes way beyond... Uh, Post-exile, it's it's more than just coming back home to uh, Israel for the Jews. It's it's beyond this world. It's it's life in the new creation. Now, um, if you've been over to the the corner of, um, of Brookstown Avenue and Fourth uh, Street in that area lately, uh, kind of where the the West End Cafe is over there or Moselle's, um that is uh, a demolition zone. And if, if you haven't been over there, you should, you should go look at it. Every time I drive by it, it's a little depressing just how ugly it is over there. And uh, a, f- a friend recently gave me a newspaper clipping that talked about this, uh, this West End Station that they're building over there. And uh, it was an architect's rendering, you, you know, you've seen those before, an architect's rendering of what is going to be there at the corner of 4th and Brookstown. And of course, seeing that, um, this beautiful picture of that people are happy with. They have dogs and they're walking and talking and shopping and it's tree-lined sidewalks. It never quite looks the way that it shows you in those visions. There's flower beds blossoming, all that stuff. Um, That is this vision of, of hope that at least helps you if you're living in that area with all of the smoke, all of the excavators that are just crushing ceilings right now and bulldozers plowing, you know, rubble away and that sound of the... The beep, beep, beep sound when those uh, those giant loaders are backing up. That all that obnoxious mess. If you have that vision of hope, um, then you can you can kind of live in that. You can live in that demolition zone, and that's very much what Isaiah is saying to to the people who are about to be exiled. That uh, that you're living in that kind of demolition zone, and he would say that to you too here in America in 2017. That we are living still in a a place that is a lot more like a demolition zone than it is like the west end station that's coming and and so isaiah is giving us hope in that time that there will be this greater thing that's coming isaiah chapter 35 so i want to look at the devastation first which is a very realistic depiction of the destructiveness of this world we don't really need to be convinced of that do we uh, this weekend. That's the first thing, and then, and then, secondly, I want to try to kind of paint a picture of the hope that Isaiah is giving in chapter thirty-five. So, first of all, um, somebody asked me, "Well, where is the? Where are you going to find the bad news? You always find the bad news in point one. Where are you going to find the bad news in this passage? And it's not that hard, actually. The demolition zone." Is, is fairly apparent um, if you just isolate some words. So uh, you can go back to chapter 34 if you really want to hear about it. But even in chapter 35, you see a lot of the, uh, the destruction that is coming on Israel, the wilderness and dry land. For uh, desert-dwelling people, that, that's a terrible thing, the wilderness and dry land in verse 1. And then the desert in verse 6. It's like the, uh, the uninhabitable region. Um, The the formlessness and void is coming back to take over uh, the ordered creation. Uh, In verse 7, the burning sand and the thirsty ground. So in the environment you see, in the natural world, you see the devastation right there. Uh, Among the animals, it talks about the jackals and the lions and other scavengers, vultures, ravenous beasts in verse 7 and 9 that uh, they are coming into what was once a, a city, a civilized city, is so devastated that now all these scavengers are coming in. They're eating dead bodies and stuff like that. And then in, in verse 5 and 6, you see uh, the physical body, uh, the, the blind, the deaf, the lame, and the mute, um, that those are not the way things are supposed to be. And then finally in the human spirit, the weak hands, the feeble knees, the anxious hearts, verse 3 and 4, it's a, it's a pretty comprehensive... Depiction actually of uh, the devastation that we live in and really it's also a warning to anyone who's trying to find Maximum happiness here and now Isaiah would say it's a fool's errand. It's not going to work out Uh, That's not what life's about But this idea that the, the Christians have always believed in It's one of the it's one of the hardest things for our culture to believe in about Christianity And you might not believe in it yourself and maybe that's the thing keeping you from believing in, uh, in Christianity, but this idea of the fall, we call it the fall, not like the spring, uh, summer, winter, fall, but the fall as in this giant calamity, like you fell off a building. It's like the world or the universe just fell off uh, a building and it broke. Um, and so this idea has been widely ridiculed in our day as pessimistic and negative, maybe even psychologically damaging. Um, a friend of ours, said that the way we pray with our children and uh, we all confess our sins together every night is probably psychologically damaging to them and some, something in, in elementary school you'll never hear about is the fall of man that's not going to come up in any elementary school curriculum and because people think that it's uh, it's it's um it somehow makes us uh, feel terrible at ourselves and self-esteem is the most important thing so don't talk about this part of life but I would say that if you, if you don't talk about it, if you pretend that things are well and good right now, that that is actually what is damaging. And, and, and it makes you think that, that this is the way things are supposed to be. I mean, what could be more pessimistic than saying that the way things are right now is fine. This is all fine. Uh, that is what I think is most damaging, to, to believe that. It's much better to say the world is like the ruin of a majestic castle that was once glorious, but now has fallen into decay. I think that's what, that's what we're really talking about here um, in the doctrine of the fall. This, this wonderful thing is broken, and we live in it. And it's not the way things are supposed to be. From you know, Hurricane Katrina in the natural world, the tsunami that hit uh, about a decade ago that killed over 100,000 people instantly. Um, from heart disease to Zika, uh, Ebola, things like that, uh, PTSD dementia, and the world of the mind, you know what happened in Charlottesville, whatever's going to happen next in our country um, these are these are not the way things are supposed to be, clearly, I think. And as an atheist, I used to actually um, when I did not believe in God at all, I used to really hold this against Christians. This is kind of ironic, but I thought that Christians were people who pretended that things were Fine. You know, it, again, it's ironic because they're the ones who have the doctrine of the fall. But I thought that Christians were people who had a naive view of the world, that everything was just fine. And uh, and so, you know, I, I looked at the paintings that I saw and uh, Christian so, so-called Christian art. A lot of it seemed nostalgic uh, of happy villages at twilight of an, a bygone era or uh, the songs I would hear on family radio, the positive songs. Um, or the, the, the novels or the movies where everything was kind of tied up in a bow. I saw that and I said, these are, these are people who uh, kind of have the, the wool pulled over their eyes. This is, a, this is not addressing reality. And at that point in my life, um, I loved uh, the paintings of Hieronymus Bosch, for instance, which are kind of dark, if you ever know uh, that artist. Generally, I liked paintings that were on the darker side of things. And uh, music that also captured um, more the fallen side of life. Uh, Tom Waits is one of the people who kind of writes songs that are, that are not poppy or cheerful or public enemy or nirvana. And then I loved uh, Crime and Punishment, it's my favorite novel. Uh, if you know Dostoevsky, it's not light reading at all, or Fahrenheit 451. So I was reading this stuff, and I looked at that stuff, and I thought, they're naive. Uh, they are not reckoning with the world as it really is. And I thought Christians were kind of sweeping things under the rug. And uh, another one of my favorite novelists is Walker Percy, a southern Catholic writer from New Orleans. And and Percy said, uh, bad books lie. Bad books lie. Most of all, they lie about the human condition. And I would say that part of the reason that Isaiah is a great book is because it does not lie about the human condition. That Isaiah is telling you the truth about life Going back to chapter 34, if you have a Bible, you can look back there. Verse 3 mentions uh, stenching or stinking corpses, the stench of human corpses, the smell of rotting flesh. Um, that's not lying about life. Think about um, bodies washed up on the beach uh, of, of Dunkirk. I saw that movie last night. That's kind of a fresh image in my mind. Corpses that stink. Or in verse 9 of chapter 34, streams that turn to pitch. And soil to sulfur. That could be a description of environmental disaster. The BP oil spill or something like that. Uh, Thorns, verse 13, thorns growing over old majestic buildings. Like you might see in Baghdad today. Uh, Once a glorious city that has been almost completely ruined. And uh, whether it's warfare, environmental disaster, the destruction of civilization... My point is that uh, Isaiah does not pull any punches or sweep anything under the rug. That, you know, these masters of suspicion like Marx and Nietzsche and Freud and Foucault, uh, that they are all timid. They're timid in comparison to Isaiah. That if you want to know what's, what's going on with life, the darkest of the dark side, the place you want to turn is the Bible and only the Bible. I don't know any other literature, including a lot of the literature that is derivative from the Bible, derived from the Bible. It doesn't give you quite a stark a painting of what life's really like. And you know, actually as, as an atheist, um, I don't think uh, that I had any basis for critiquing the world. If you really think about it, I was a physics major. I knew that the universe was just the universe, that it couldn't help being the universe, that it was what it was, That there was no really ought to, or this is wrong, or this is not how things should be. That it was just fixed laws kind of moving into the future. And that really the idea um, of of a better world or the way it ought to have been, that's all just, you know, fairy tales. That's meaningless. As an atheist, I had no real basis, uh, no straight line to critique the bent world. But in my heart, I knew through all the art that I loved, the books that I loved, I knew this is not right. I knew this place was messed up. I knew that sexism and racism and hazing uh, and mistreating people and picking on people, I knew that was wrong. I knew that deep down inside, even though my brain was telling me that it's not possible. But, you know, now as a a believer, I, I know that my heart was right, that Isaiah is right, that the world is bent. This is not the way the world should be. It's kind of like one of those cutting boards that gets warped and you try to put it down on a flat countertop. It's, if you lay what, what reality is like against what it should be like, it does not fit. And I just want to confirm that impulse in you, in all of us, that feels like this is not right. And amen to that. It is not right. And Isaiah would tell you that, that we do live in a demolition zone. And that's point one, that we do live in a, in a, in a world that, that, is, that is dark and uh, is not right Point two is that uh, there's hope. It, it, it's not, this is not nihilism or nihilism, or however you pronounce that. This is, this is a, a, a word of hope, uh, essentially, uh, in, in a dark place. So look at, uh, look at this hope in, in verse 1 and 2, the hope of nature. And I always love the fact that the Bible brings the hope all the way to the point of nature. It's not just humans being changed. It's actually the flowers out there, the trees out there, the sky up there. The seas that are out there. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to the desert and the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. All of that's going to be given to the desert. So I'll start with the glory of Lebanon. If you've ever been to Mooney's downtown, great Lebanese restaurant, you know what their logo is? It's a it's a it's a tree. It's the glory of Lebanon. I, I asked Mooney, why do you have a tree uh, as your symbol? And he said, well, if you've been to Lebanon, anyone who's gone to Lebanon knows that uh, it's these beautiful cedars that are the glory of Lebanon. Um, kind of like a, a California redwood, but they're a little, they're a little wider. They, kind of, they don't go straight up. They more come out like that. And he showed me some pictures of the glory of Lebanon. And Isaiah is saying, you know, that is going to appear in the desert. And then uh, Carmel, if you've ever uh, Googled an image of Carmel, it's kind of shocking. I didn't even know that that Palestine had anything like this. Um, Carmel means the vineyard of God. And if you look at a picture of it, if you Google that, you'll see why. It's this coastal mountain range that's up in Galilee. And it's like these beautiful green rolling hills like the ones we saw in Ireland, but they're in Palestine. And so he's saying that in a desert place... uh, Carmel will, like a a mountain range like that will appear, like in the middle of the Sahara Desert. And then finally, Sharon uh, is this luxuriant valley um, that is within sight of the Mediterranean. So you can see a picture of it, and then behind it, you see the, the Mediterranean Sea, and it's got orange groves, and it's got these beds of roses, all in these very ordered rows. That's what Sharon is. So basically, he's taking the national park's Right, of, of, of his country. Isaiah is taking these gorgeous national parks and he's saying, These are the most beautiful sights I've ever seen. And, and the desert is going to blossom um, like a daisy in the sand. It's going to blossom like a crocus. Now, if you know what a crocus is, they're one of the more common spring flowers. They, they are this little white, at first, they're just a little white cup, very small. But then all of a sudden, um, somewhere in the spring, it'll open up, and suddenly there's three little beautiful striking yellow, almost neon yellow stalks. And then this part is purple. It's a deep purple. And so what Isaiah is saying is that in the desert, shockingly and suddenly, all this life, and not just any kind of life, but glorious life, the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. And so, you know, I take that both literally and figuratively. I think that will happen, that there will be a time when nature will come to life in a way that right now is not true of her. But I also think that he's basically saying that life is going to come out of lifelessness, out of nothingness, out of barrenness. That uh, the most beautiful things will appear suddenly and inexplicably and miraculously and spontaneously in places where there's no business having these things appear and in a way this is like an oasis if you know about uh, the oasis if you if you think about what an oasis is i've seen movies where they depicted an oasis Um, i've had an image of that from books and i always think about like a tide pool at the ocean in the sand and there's maybe two little palm trees on either side and that is not at all what an oasis is i think that isaiah has in mind a real oasis and my friend who lived in the sahara desert said that an oasis is more like a um, this cavern it's like deep down in the rock and there's a waterfall going into the cavern he showed me a picture of one down in there there are all these trees and grass everywhere just life everywhere and, and little animals down there and it's like this Crystal clear, deep lake in the middle of this thing. And Isaiah has that. He's showing his people that that as their hope in the midst of uh, what he predicts to be this devastation zone. And so his audience pictured that when they read verse six, water breaking forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The uh, the glory of nature popping out of dry sand and desert and burning sand and thirsty ground. Um, Austin a few weeks ago, critiqued the song I'll fly away, which he likes to sing, which is kind of ironic, but actually he's written a version where he's got new lyrics and they're better lyrics. Okay. It's a great song, a great tune, but, um, he's written better lyrics and hopefully we'll sing those sometime, but here's how the old bad lyrics went. (laughs) Some bright morning when this life is over, I'll fly away. I like the sentiment about life beyond death. Okay. I do believe in that. To that home on God's celestial shore, and the shore is a good idea, kind of a beach image, I'll fly away. Uh, when the shadows of this life have gone, I'll fly away. Like a, a bird from prison bars has flown, I'll fly away. And I would say that's more of a, the hope of someone like Plato or uh, what they called the Gnostics, um, the early early Christian heresy, where you're trying to escape this body. You're trying to escape the prison of this life, the prison of this world. Isaiah would not use the word prison to describe nature. Clearly, he would use the word glory. He says uh, in verse two that that nature, that the, the blooming of nature is the glory of the Lord, that it has enough of God in it to be called majesty. That when you see something in nature that's beautiful, it's only a shadow of what's to come. But even that thing is glory. There's glory there to quote the, uh, the great British poet. Uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins, uh, it will flame out like shining from chute foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. That uh, nature is going to shine forth with the the grandeur of God, the glory of God. And so if you're having a problem right now imagining hope, if you're more resonating with the devastation part, um, Isaiah is kind of giving you a feast for your imagination. That's what he's doing. The prophets always did that. They wanted to change your imagination for life and to indulge your mind uh, in these promises that he's giving you. That hopefully, even as you're hearing them, it's lifting your soul. Um, He says that, that these promises alone can strengthen weak hands in verse three and make firm, feeble knees and I, I read an article, someone gave me recently, that scientists say, um, neuroscientists, that you can change you know, the ruts that are made in your thinking by old patterns of thought, um, OCD or something like that. Um, these patterns that you can actually, by, by uh, mental exercise and meditation technique, you can reprogram the architecture of your brain. And Isaiah would say, that's why you've got to feast your mind and get these images in your head and meditate on these images. And let it change the way you think about this world. You know, maybe you're experiencing the, uh, the burning sand and thirsty pool. Uh, dryness in verse 7. And that could be a dryness in a, in a relationship. The dryness of a lost intimacy is, is a very painful kind of dryness. And I think Isaiah recognizes uh, an intimacy drought in that language or barrenness, um, literal barrenness or loneliness. Um, he talks about the, the haunt of jackals, which is a very fearful place, a place where jackals live, where you'd be afraid to go, where you know some of you might be afraid of certain places uh, in, in America today. Um, I'd be afraid of being in Charlottesville right now. Uh, just the, the, the anger, maybe not physically, but just the anger, emotionally afraid of certain settings. Uh, the breakdown of the physical body, all these things are part of the devastation. Isaiah would say, uh, don't sweep that under the rug or block that out or keep that outside the doors of church, as often we're told to do as Christians. He would say, no, bring that in here. Uh, Bring that right to God. Take it to the table when you have the Lord's Supper and uh, and inject it with, with hope. You know, Even going back to a trauma in the past with an image of Jesus there, of these promises there, is a very healing thing to do with your mind. Uh, Verses 5 through 6, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame shall leap, the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. He even says that nature will be singing. I mean, meditate on nature uh, rejoicing with joy and singing. Meditate on nature, you know, closing her eyes and raising her hands and just singing hallelujah to God. That's what he wants you to think about in this vision. We hiked from uh, Carver's Gap to uh, Jane Bald. It's up in this area called Roan Mountain. One of the most beautiful hikes on the east of the Mississippi. And uh, I look forward to making that hike with greater glory. It's hard to imagine, but there won't be a hotel on top of Sugar Mountain, for one thing. The, uh, the glory of that hike will be absolutely astonishing in the new world. It won't be gone, either. I, uh, I also got to go swimming uh, in the Atlantic Ocean recently, and I love the ocean. You feel like you're in nature, not just that you're watching nature, but that you're in it. You know, the, the way it gets into your nose, and your mouth, and your eyes, and everything, and the waves, in your sights, Uh, I look forward to swimming, but again, with greater glory. That's the hope that I've been given by Isaiah. Or more deeply, that uh, the sad people that I know, the hurting people that I know, the hurting people that is me, the sad person that is me, that, that they will be singing with everlasting joy on their heads in verse 10, and finally obtaining gladness and joy. Some of this could happen in this life, but the majority will happen after this life in the new creation. But there's hope for that even now. Uh, My hope is that no one will ever have another thought of suicide. That despair will never plague anyone again. As sorrow and sighing flee away, in verse 10. Sorrow and sighing, fleeing, like running like crazy from the new creation, because it's so glorious. And you know, the prospect of a vacation... uh, which is probably over for you this summer. You know, it's over for me. Um, that can get you through some hard times when you, you, have a, you have a trip planned and you're looking forward to it and you had a really bad day at work. It'll help you get through that. Or maybe now you've turned to the football season that's coming up or, you know, maybe it's another sport, but that can kind of push you through the, the difficult mid-August weeks. Um, maybe uh, it's a new marriage, which is very exciting, or a new house or a new job or a new baby. Uh, those things, to some extent, they can soothe your heart. They can make your hands kind of that that were shaking be a little steady Your knees, steady them a little bit. But Isaiah would say that anything that is that close to where we are right now that is in this world is not enough. It's not enough. Not when you're going through real tragedy. A vacation is not going to help you in real tragedy. Um, He says, I've got a vision of life that will steady you in any storm. It's it's an anchor so deep that it can actually strengthen weak hands and make firm, feeble knees. And uh, the the, the essential reason, which I haven't really talked about yet, which we're going to celebrate in this meal, the essential reason for this is that our hope is based on God coming into the demolition zone. And if you're not familiar with Christianity, this is our essential claim, okay? This is what all Christians in all times and all places would always agree upon, that God has come into the middle of the demolition zone. Uh, verse 3 puts it so beautifully. Say to anxious hearts, be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come. He, in other words, he will come into the crisis of Isaiah 34, He's not going to come into a nice little cleaned up world. He's coming into a disaster of the fall into hell. Into hell he will come and he will save the world and he will bring it back home to him. Verse four, he will come and he will save you. He will ransom you. He will redeem you. He will bring you back to the home where we ought to have lived our entire lives long. The Garden of Eden. I saw uh, Dunkirk, as I said last night. I highly recommend it. 94 on Metascore, which is very hard to get, Um, but that's not why you should watch it. You should watch it because I'm telling you you should watch it. No, that's not why you should watch it. You should watch it because it is a truly great movie, a very creative movie. There are, if you don't know the story, there are half a million allied troops, French and British and uh, Dutch troops, all the allies against the Nazis. They have been pinned down. The Nazi army has pinned them down on this beach, this stretch of beach in, in France, Dunkirk. And um, they are sitting ducks on that beach. They're waiting for the, the, the ships, the, the, the carriers, to bring them back over to England, which is just a few miles across the English Channel. But meanwhile, these uh, German planes are dropping bombs on them. There are uh, submarines just um, torpedoing the... The f- very few ships that are coming to get them, they're just sinking immediately. It's, uh, the, the, the majority of the movie is, there's music playing that really gets you kind of nervous, and you're just on the edge of your seats, feeling the tragedy and the pain of what's going on there. Um, but then the music actually changes. If you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. There's a, a moment where for the first time, the music kind of becomes soothing, and deep, and positive, and, and uh, joyful. And... Uh, Kenneth Branagh is the British, perfect casting for the British general. And he's on the shore, and he is looking through some spy glasses at what's, what's out on the horizon. Because he notices there's something weird going on, on the horizon. And uh, what he beholds uh, is this fleet of tiny little you know, British uh, sailboats, little pleasure cruise sailboats, little fishing boats, and little tugboats, and yachts. That all of these, uh, these British uh, fishermen, and seamen, have left uh, their homes and come across the channel to Dunkirk to save and rescue these, uh, these troops. Uh, it's like he's beholding the coming of the Savior. And they're heading, of course, into the beach, the torpedo. They're heading right into the bombers, into the devastation, and they're doing it to save the troops. And uh, as he's looking, I think it's the first time anyone smiles in the whole movie. He smiles. And so the captain says, "Uh, sir, what do you see? And he says, I see home. I see home. And I think that uh, one thing that this supper does is it shows us uh, both beholding the coming of our God, and it also shows us our true home, where, where he's saving us to, where we're going back to. And so on the night that uh, Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my bread.